Hey, good morning, Life Church Livonia. It is so good to be with you here this morning. I'm thinking about you, Mark. I'm thinking about you, Ron. I'm thinking about you, Nick and Eloisa. It is a privilege to get to gather together digitally this morning and to hear from God's word together as a community. Um, I'm really grateful to be here and I'm really grateful that you're here. If this is your first time, welcome to week six of our series, A New Way to Be Human. Uh, This series is a response to all the grief, all the uh, heaviness, all the conflict and combativeness, all the intensity of this last year and a half, whether it's the racial violence that really came to the forefront of the American consciousness or uh, the toxic political climate, the losses we've all experienced with COVID, our interpersonal conflicts with our family and friends. It just has left so many of us feeling like there has just got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way to do conflict. There's got to be a better way to talk about differences. There's got to be a better way to be unified. There's got to be a better way to discern truth. There's got to be a better way to be human beings to each other. And the good news is there's not just a better way. In Jesus, there is a new way, a new way to be human. And today we're going to be looking at Jesus's new way of dealing with enemies. And as we get into that, I would love for you to put your favorite super villain in the comments right now. Is it the Green Goblin with Spider-Man? He's pretty classic. Mysterio kind of rose to some new notoriety with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal in the last Spider-Man movie. Maybe for you it's uh, a DC one like Lex Luthor or maybe Brainiac. He was a really good one. But my favorite super villain of all time has got to be the Joker. And I know I talked about Batman and the Joker last time, so I'm not going to get all into it. Mark Hamill's still the best Joker. Woo woo. Anyway, um, I love the Joker. And what I love about the Joker is he is like totally irredeemably evil. (laughs) There's no good part of him. You know, like even like with Thanos and the Avengers Endgame stuff, like Thanos, he was doing the wrong thing, but for the right reasons, right? He was like concerned about overpopulation. We're using up all the universe's resources. We're going to kill the universe or we have to die. And so his solution was, okay, well then some of us have to die. And that's his whole thing. You can at least empathize with some of that, right? But Not with the Joker. He's just totally manipulative. He's totally malicious. He's purely maniacal. As Michael Caine said uh, to Christian Bale in The Dark Knight, he said, some men just want to watch the world burn. And that's the Joker. And uh, now I think part of why I love that and I love uh, American superheroes is they face evil head on. And they overcome it with power, with money, with intelligence, and with good old-fashioned hard work. Uh, When they're attacked, they simply beat their enemies down, throw some handcuffs on them, and call it a day. You know what I'm saying? And uh, wouldn't it be so nice if our enemies were just like that blatantly wrong, were that blatantly evil? You know, they came in such obviously packaged uh, costumes and makeup just to say like, hey, I'm the bad guy here. Uh, But... For better or worse, unfortunately, uh, that's not how our enemies are. Our enemies don't come uh, with a face full of makeup and a t-shirt that says, I'm the bad guy. And I know some of you are thinking, well, you probably haven't met my mother-in-law. But if that's you, we got counseling for that, okay? We got to love everybody. (laughs) I love my (laughs) mother-in-law. And uh, you can reach out to us in the comments. Uh, We'll we'll get you hooked up with some counseling for that. Um. But one of the difficult things about real life enemies versus comic book enemies 
is in the real world, our enemies uh, aren't completely wrong and they're not completely evil. They're just hurtful. And uh, they don't wear costumes and makeup. Instead, they wear the faces of our family. Our enemies wear the faces of our siblings, our parents, our spouses, our children, and even our in-laws. Statistics say that for over 50% of us, uh, we have enemies that are ex-spouses, ex-friends, ex-significant others. Maybe your enemies are simply those people. You know the ones I'm talking about, the kinds that wear the red shirts and the red hats at the political rallies. Or maybe your enemies are the radical, those people who wear the blue shirts and the blue hats at the political rallies. Our enemies in the real world are not dressed up uh, in costumes, but in our work uniforms at our jobs. They're dressed up in suits or in school clothes. And maybe one of your enemies is even the person who looks back at you in the mirror. Now, I just want to acknowledge Talking about enemies uh, is difficult, and it can be awkward and um, painful. And I think there are a couple reasons for that. Sometimes it's because we feel bad about labeling other people as our enemies. Uh, and sometimes it's because we have such deep griefs or wounds uh, from a person that it's just as difficult to even think about it, to bring it up, to process it. And so I just want to give a disclaimer that um, today... Uh, It's going to be a little bit of an intense sermon as we talk about enemies. And I want to give you permission to not feel bad about having enemies. Because one thing is for certain. We all have enemies, have had enemies, or will have enemies. It's just a part of life. And the way that we deal with our enemies is a crucial ingredient to whether or not a human community flourishes or dies. And so we're going to be looking at Jesus' new way to handle enemies today. Our definition today for the purposes of this sermon are an enemy is simply someone who drives us crazy, actively opposes us, or hurts us. So with that definition in mind, I want to tell you a story about uh, one of my enemies. I remember back in late college, I had a co-worker, and we'll call him Dave. I'm going to keep the details of this vague so that, uh, just to protect the people involved, but... Dave was one of the first people I ever felt like was truly an enemy to me. And um, I had gotten this job. I was really excited about it. And um, I I thought it was going to give me really great experience on my resume. And it was going to really help set me up for what I wanted to do uh, post-graduation. And it it really seemed like a dream scenario. Uh, And because I was new to the job, Dave was my supervisor. And uh, that was fine. Dave was a, a pretty good supervisor. He had a magnetic personality, kind of an aggressive guy, a go-getter. Uh, and we worked well together until one day um, I was doing one of my tasks and Dave came over to me and said, what are you doing? And I looked at him confused and kind of shocked. And I said, uh, I'm doing what we talked about at our check-in meeting, uh, you know, this past week. And he said, no, you're not. And I was like, uh, what do you mean? He said, if you were doing what I asked you to do at our check-in meeting, you would be doing A, B, and D, not A, B, and C. How could you screw that up? And, and, and I was totally shocked. <laughs> and I said, uh, you know, we were both Christians who both loved Jesus. We were trying to uh, represent Jesus in the job we were working at to our coworkers and to the community and such. And I, I was really taken aback. And I replied, oh, oh I'm sorry. I, you didn't tell me to do D instead of C. And I just assumed C would come before D in the task. And Dave said, yeah, I did tell you. 
I told you at our meeting on Tuesday, you're just not remembering correctly. And at that point, I was both stunned and angry um, because I had always heard from my teachers, from my friends, from my family, etc., that I had a great memory. And now this guy is frustrated that I'm not doing something I don't think he communicated clearly to me. And uh, I was really angry that instead of taking any ownership from that, he just attacked my ability to remember and say, blaming me and my cognitive abilities for why I'm not doing what he wants. And I said, uh, okay, well, um, that's possible. And I'm sorry things aren't going uh, the way you expected, but what would you like me to do right now about it? And Dave, flustered and frustrated, said, I don't know, we're going to have to talk about this later. And then whipped around with a smile on his face and said to the next customer, Hi, what can we do for you today? I followed up with Dave after at our next check-in after that. And um, I told him how I was really taken aback by his anger. And I, I wasn't sure what to do about that. And I was hurt and frustrated that he had blamed me and my cognitive ability to remember our conversation. Um, instead of taking some responsibility as my supervisor and just saying, you know, I might not have been clear enough about that. Here's what I want you to do now. And, um, you know, I expressed how I was feeling about that. And Dave responded with just a very calm face. He listened to me. And then he completely reaffirmed his position, explaining how uh, because I'm new here, there are just things I don't understand. Uh, but I need to do a better job making sure I do understand them so we can avoid mistakes like this in the future. And then he proceeded to give me advice on how I might be able to better uh, not miss things next time. Things continued like that for a while. And, and they got pretty dark and, and pretty tense. Dave would assign me a task. I'd be in the middle of doing a task. He'd get angry at me, often yelling, explaining uh, how I wasn't fulfilling some new expectation that he had never communicated to me. And I began to really hate and fear Dave for that. Uh, every time I was around him, uh, I was afraid I was going to get yelled at for not doing something uh, I didn't know I should be doing. So eventually I, I tried to, I worked, tried to work it out with him and it, it just, he wasn't hearing me and wasn't taking any responsibility. So I, I tried to talk to our manager above us and he talked to both of us and Dave was just able to present his side in such a way that it sounded like he wasn't really doing anything wrong. And he, he blamed me for just being oversensitive and new to the job and that I just didn't understand how things worked around here. He'd say things like, this is just my role, isn't it? Or aren't I supposed to do this as a manager? And uh, he was able to talk his way out of any discipline and nothing changed. I wanted to quit that job so bad. But every time I'd pray about it uh, and I'd start looking for a new one, the Lord would just impress upon my heart to stay. So I felt horribly, horribly stuck. None of my methods for conflict resolution had worked. And I felt like God wanted me to stay. And I couldn't change Dave. Uh, I couldn't leave the job, but things couldn't stay the same. And like I said, things got pretty emotionally abusive and pretty dark after that for a little while. And all I wanted was for Dave to pay. I wanted justice. I just wanted somebody to see me and see what was really happening and uh, do the right thing and defend me and give Dave some uh, 
appropriate consequences for his behavior. Um, I wanted, I, I wanted justice. I wanted Dave to get what he deserved. But God wanted something very different than that. And this was the beginning of God doing a deep and very painful transformation in me and in my life as he began to show me his new way to deal with enemies. So we're going to read Jesus' teaching on how kingdom people are to deal with their enemies. And, and there are going to be three things that guide our conversation today. We're going to talk about why is Jesus saying this? Uh, and then what is Jesus wanting to do inside our inner world, what we think and feel? And what is he wanting to do in our outer world, uh, what we say and what we do? So here's Jesus' teaching on enemies. He says, You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. So this is a very stark uh, and difficult to swallow contrast to how I wanted to handle my situation with Dave. And I wanted to begin with, why is Jesus saying this? Why is Jesus saying this? Well, this all kind of culminates in the last sentence here. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Everything, the Beatitudes, the section on salt and light, Jesus fulfilling the law, his expansion on these Ten Commandments of adultery, murder, oaths, divorce, etc. All of it culminates in this one phrase, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This word here used for perfect does not mean sinless. What this is not saying is be ethically blameless, like your Father in heaven is ethically blameless. It's not saying have no sin. It's not saying be totally righteous in all of your actions. That word for perfect is the word to mean complete, finished, whole, fully mature. So what Jesus is saying here in this moment is all the things in the Sermon on the Mount leading up to this. Why do we do the Beatitudes? Why do we handle adultery and sex in this way? Why do we handle anger and murder in this way? Why do we handle oaths and divorce in this way? Why do we handle our enemies this way? Because when you live that way, you are a spiritual adult. Like your Father in Heaven is a spiritual adult. That's what Jesus is getting at. Be a spiritual adult like your Father in Heaven is a spiritual adult adult. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Why is that important? Remember back to week one of this series. This sermon that Jesus is preaching is about how do we bring heaven to earth? All of us want a world made right. That's what I wanted with Dave. Something was happening that was wrong. It was really wrong. And it was hurtful to me because it was wrong. And I wanted justice against Dave because I wanted the world to be right again. 
I wanted somebody to tell Dave, you can't do this. This is wrong. And you need to live in a different way that's right. And the way that I so wanted to bring about that right world was making Dave pay. Making him see and understand. But Jesus' way is different. And when we live like our Father in heaven as spiritual adults, we bring heaven to earth. So the why behind this new ethic on enemies is because Jesus is saying, hey, I know you think you know how to make the world right and good and whole, but you don't. <laughs> this is how. This is how you do it. You treat your enemies in this way because that's how God treats his enemies. We're going to move on. What does uh, this mean for our inner world? What is Jesus asking us in our inner world um, to think and feel about our enemies. This is the kind of section right before this be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It says this, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. We're going to come back to this and pray for those who persecute you. Why would Jesus say that? That you may be children of your father in heaven. By children of your father in heaven, it means you might be an extension of his family upon the earth because it's through God's family that heaven comes to earth and the world is healed and made right. When you, are, when you live like this, when you love your enemies, when we pray for those who persecute us, we are ambassadors of heaven who bring the government of heaven to earth. Right? And Jesus is saying that this is how God lives because he, God, causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This is called prevenient grace. It means that whether or not you believe in God, the good things that God has made are still good. Whether or not you follow God, food is still delicious. Whether or not you follow God, sex still feels good. Whether or not you follow God, sleep is satisfying. Whether or not you follow God, the sunset is still beautiful. The rain still produces crops. All the good parts of life are still available to us because God treats everybody with that kind of goodness and grace. Jesus goes on to say, If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? So pagans and tax collectors, the most hated groups in the Jewish community. Pagans were people that were non-Jews and did not follow Yahweh. Tax collectors were Jews who were betraying the Jewish people to their oppressors and getting financial gain from it. The Jews hated these two groups. But we could just replace those with any other groups we hate. Who are those groups that you think are the problem with the world? Don't abusers and manipulators show kindness to people who show kindness to them? Don't cheaters and liars say hello to people who greet them? Don't the far left and the far right show goodness to the people that are on their own sides? Don't the rich and the greedy share a smile with those who smile at them? Don't the hate-filled and the horrible do these things? What Jesus is getting at here is even the people I dislike the most are good to people who are good to them. But we, as Christians, are meant to be like our Father in heaven so, that, uh, so we love our enemies, not just people who are good to us. We're not just good to people who are good to us. We're good to people who are not good to us. And, and Jesus 
kind of twists it in a little bit further when he says this Greek word for love that he uses for love your enemies is agapao. Say that with me right here. Agapao. One more time, everybody. Agapao. You guys are so good. You're speaking Greek today. Um, agapao is this kind of love um, that is intense and does not need to be reciprocated to exist. It is a deeply platonic love and it is a rich and deep love that is overwhelmingly biased in the other person's favor and flourishing, even at the, own, at the expense of my own rights and privileges. I know privilege can be a trigger word in this day and age, so I'll just summarize agapao like this. It means, I love you so much, I want you to win, even if it means I lose. Agapao is, I want you to win, even if it means that I lose. And what Jesus is saying here is I want you to love your enemies so deeply that you want them to win even if it means you lose. And I want you to pray for those who oppress and persecute you. That feels impossible. And we'll get back to that because it kind of is. But Jesus has a solution for that. So Jesus wants us to live this way because that's how we bring heaven to earth. And in our inner world, he doesn't want us to inwardly seethe and hate our enemies and outwardly do false goodness to them that isn't coming from our hearts. He wants us to love our enemies in a way that we are willing to sacrifice for their benefit and blessing. And so what is he asking us to do in our outer world with what we say and with what we do? Well, this is the first section of that passage where he begins by saying, You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So we're going to break this down to understand it a little bit. But we're, and we're going to start this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. This is from the Code of Hammurabi. You probably remember that from ninth grade history class. Some of you are teachers. Maybe you're teaching the Code of Hammurabi right now. This is one of the oldest laws in the whole world. And the Jewish scriptures, the old Levitical laws in the Old Testament, reaffirm this law in different wording four different times. So this is an Old Testament law uh, that is adapted from the Code of Hammurabi. And, and the point of the law is this. It's not meant to be brutal. It's meant to promote mercy because of its severity. For example, let's pretend we're in ancient times and you do me wrong and I just want to punch you in the face so freaking bad. This law is supposed to make me think, ooh, but if I break your nose, you get to break my nose. Ooh, but if I push you off this ledge and you break your leg, you get to break my leg. Oh, but if I knock a tooth out, then you get to knock one of my teeth out. Right? It's supposed to give us this pause that goes... Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe another day. <clears throat> because mercy is simply uh, withholding a punishment that is justly deserved. Mercy is withholding a punishment that is justly deserved. So Jesus is starting with this. You've heard it said, live in this way where you uh, are merciful toward one another. Right? Where you withhold punishments that are justly deserved. And then he goes on to say, but I tell you. Do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. 
Now, this is Jesus is describing in this both physical harm and social harm. Obviously, a slap hurts physical harm. The social harm is that the cheeks, and Italian culture still does this. The cheeks are where you greeted each other. Two kisses on the cheek, right? That was just a, a way of greeting each other. So if I smacked you across your face, instead of greeting you, I'm dishonoring your social standing in the community, right? So it's an attack on you socially, not just physically. And a quick side note, when Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek, one of the interesting things, the question that should elicit, it would have elicited in the minds of the listeners is, is that going to be met with another slap or is that going to be met with a kiss of repentance instead? So just a side note nuance, the turning the other cheek doesn't inherently mean opening myself up for more harm, but it does mean staying open to the people that hurt me, that there might be repentance and reconciliation. So that's a side note, but we're moving on. Jesus goes on, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. So this is a kind of harm your enemy is doing to you that's financial and that's material. A shirt in the Old Testament, New Testament, it's a shirt, right? It's just what you wore. But the coat, we don't have a garment like the coat. The coat would be like, imagine your jacket plus a hoodie plus your comforter, right? The coat was something you wore over all your clothes. It protected you from the heat and the uh, weather in the daytime. And at nighttime, it was the comforter you slept with. And the coat was so important that the Old Testament specifically says, hey, if you're giving out a loan and you need some collateral, you can take a person's coat like for the day, but you have to give it back to them at night because without it, they could die. They could die from the cold of the desert. So uh, if you have to take it as collateral, make sure you don't um, uh, harm that person and you give their coat back to them at the end of the day. And so Jesus is saying, if someone takes your shirt, give them your coat. Give them your financial material security. <laughs> it gets even deeper. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. This is a, a hurting from the enemy. That's This is a taking of time and a taking of energy. Why would Jesus say these things to us? How does this make any sense? How is this going to change how we interact with our enemies or be just in any way and not just keep us from being abused. And here's what Jesus is getting at here. What is given can't be taken. What is given can't be taken. So if my enemy tries to take something from me socially, I remain open to them and I give them a second chance. If someone tries to sue me and take from me, Financially, I give even more. If somebody tries to force me to go one mile, and force is an important word in that, I'm going to give them a second mile because at that point, they're not taking it from me. I'm giving it to them. A beautiful, beautiful, beautiful example of this um, is the, the um, scene in Les Miserables where this convict, Jean Valjean, he gets out of this prison camp that uh, does enforce forced labor, and it's hell. And he gets out and he uh, has to wear a sign that says he's an ex-con. He finds a priest who's willing to take him in for the night. Jean Valjean is staying at the priest's house. And while he's staying, he notices the priest has a lot of silverware, like real silver. Jean Valjean sees it as his opportunity. The middle of the night, he gets up and steals all the priest's silverware. The priest hears some clattering and gets up to go look around and see what's happening. And Jean Valjean knocks him unconscious. The next day, the nuns are grieving over all the silver they've lost, over all this financial loss. 
and um, the priest is wounded. He's got a bandage on his head. And lo and behold, about 10 in the morning, these guards come, these policemen come with Jean Valjean carrying a huge bag of silver. And the police tell the priest, they say, hey, listen, obviously this guy took this from you. We just need to identify that this was the right guy. Just say the word, we'll throw him back into prison. And you can just see the grief and the fear in Jean Valjean's eyes as he looks at the priest, knowing he deserves to go back to this hellish prison and just waiting for the judgment to come. And the priest looks in Jean Valjean's eyes and says, friend, you forgot the candlesticks. And he goes back inside and grabs the remaining pieces of the silver set and gives them to Jean Valjean. And he tells the policeman, what are you doing? Let go of this man. He's no criminal. I gave this to him. And they said, there's no way you gave this to him. He obviously stole it. And he said, do I need to repeat myself? This was a gift. And the policeman, very confused, leave. And Jean Valjean, stunned, goes, what are you doing? I wronged you. And the priest leans down and whispers in his ear, with this silver, I buy your soul for God. I've ransomed you from your life of sin. And it changes Jean Valjean's whole life. This is what Jesus is getting at here. What is given can't be taken. And Jesus in this is saying, we need to go beyond mercy, which is withholding a punishment that is justly deserved. And when we give to our enemies something they don't deserve, we move into grace. And grace is giving a gift that is undeserved. And so Jesus, in summary, is saying uh, not just to be merciful to our enemies, meaning not punishing them for something they do deserve, but to be gracious with them, coming from this heart of love that is biased in their favor, because that is how our Father in heaven acts towards us, and that is what brings the kingdom of heaven to earth. And the poetry of this whole passage, the most beautiful part, is Jesus is living it as he's preaching it. He has not gone to the cross yet. There's no resurrection. No person, no person in the whole audience is a friend of God yet. Everybody is an enemy of God because of sin. And here Jesus is giving of himself on the earth to his enemies that they might become his friends. That they might become his friends friends. That Jesus is living exactly what he's preaching. And this is the most beautiful part. And this is what God was trying to teach me about Dave. We want to make our enemies pay, but God wants to make our enemies good. God wants to make our enemies good. When all of my attempts at solving things with Dave failed, I reread this passage and I knew that uh, Jesus was putting something real deep to death in me. And I did not want to give Dave any mercy, let alone grace. And I did, certainly did not want to love him. But God wanted to do a miracle in my heart. Uh, and, and let me be clear, this is impossible without a love apart from us. And this takes a miracle of the Holy Spirit. It takes divine intervention to move from hating someone to loving them. But luckily, we serve a God of miracles. And as God began to work his miracle in my heart, it had to begin with what he tells us to do in verse 44, which is to pray for those who persecute us. And so I began to pray for Dave. 
At first it was forced and painful, but over time God began to change my heart to want what was best for Dave, and I began to look for ways that I could make his job as my supervisor easier. I began to try to clarify things in advance that I thought might be unspoken. I began to try to help him and not just try to survive him. We never ended up being real friends, but we grew to appreciate each other. And when we ended that job, we ended on good terms. And as we close today, I want to invite you into that same transformation. I want you to think of an enemy. It can be a person you're still in a relationship with. It can be a person that uh, you've cut relationship off with. It can be somebody who's even passed away or even yourself. And, And I want you to invite God to begin this miracle of love in your own heart as we pray uh, this prayer of blessing over our enemies. So I just want to invite you right now to pray this with me. May you be happy. May you be free. May you be loving. May you be loved. May you know the fulfillment of what God has planned for you. And may you experience God's deep and profound love for you. May you, may Jesus Christ be formed in you. May you know his peace that passes all understanding. May all good things be yours. May Jesus' joy be in you and may that joy be complete. May you know the Lord in all his goodness and all his compassion. May you be protected from the evil one amidst every temptation that comes your way. And may the Holy Spirit fill and permeate your entire being. May you see his glory. May you be forgiven of every sin. I forgive you. Or will try to forgive you for every wound and hurt with all my heart. May God's goodness and mercy follow you all the days of your life. In the name of Jesus, amen. If you've never surrendered your life to Jesus and you're still at odds with God and his kingdom because of sin, I want you to know God loves you. And God is praying this for you right now. And if the Holy Spirit is moving in your heart and you feel that pull, I want to invite you right now to pray with me and to surrender your life to Jesus that you may become part of God's kingdom of heaven and be an agent of bringing heaven to earth to experience this new way to be human and this new life and life to the full. Would you pray with me? God, I surrender to you. Lord, I confess that I sin against you. And Lord, I don't want to live this way anymore. I don't want to be a slave to all these things that promise to satisfy me and never do. Lord, I don't want to continue not just to deal with my enemies poorly, but be an enemy towards others. And Jesus, I just ask that you take my life and transform it. I surrender to you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. If you prayed with me just now, please reach out to us on YouTube, on Facebook, on our contact form, Digital Bulletin, on our website. Please, we want to walk alongside you. God bless.